they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Father, your word tells us that you have sent the Holy Spirit to help us understand your word. As the disciples were greatly distressed, full of grief, full of sorrow, as an impending trial was about to overtake them, Jesus was calm and knew exactly what was going to happen. And we thank you we can see that in your word. Help us this morning to trust you. Amen. <coughs> the year that Sharice and I moved here, 2019, was... A happy time and a very unexpected time because we found ourselves in the midst of a storm of trial after trial after trial, suffering after suffering after suffering. It felt like it didn't stop. It started with coming here. <laughs> a couple of months into pastoring here, there were a couple of deaths. then, from there, that Christmas, or around that time, Sharice tells me, I'm pregnant, only for a week or two later, for her to experience a miscarriage. To then, in January or, or, or February, for me to go through what is called the dark night of the soul. To then COVID and everything shutting down, to that summer my grandpa dying, to then that fall Sharice's grandma dying, to then the exciting news that we were going to have another child, to only find out as the doctor comes in and says, there are some things I'm worried about, to our son then needing heart surgery, stomach surgery. Total, a lot of different surgeries. 37 days in the NICU. And I wonder if maybe you're human, a little bit like me, and you've asked the question, have I done something wrong? What have I done to deserve all of this suffering and affliction? Maybe you're convinced that you're suffering because of the wrong things that you did earlier in life. There's this internal voice in your head that's saying, God has it out for you. He's paying you back for all of the wrong you've done. 
he had the time of trial after trial and suffering, one of the things that I've come to realize in about the 21st century is that most people do not have a framework for suffering. We, we acknowledge in our minds that suffering happens, but in our hearts, we don't really believe that suffering should or can happen. Or at least what we, we think is that I'm exempt from suffering. Maybe they're not, <laughs> but I am. So when suffering comes, we're shocked. And when it lingers, we start to think there must be a problem with me. There has to be a deficiency in my life. This makes no sense why this would happen to me. This is unfair. That's one thing that I learned. And the other thing that I learned is that most of the time when it comes to the Christian having a misunderstanding of suffering like this is there still is in their heart some ounce of works-based love with God. If I would have just done this right, then God wouldn't be doing this to me. And we forget that our God is a loving, compassionate God. And so we think, there's something wrong with me. I'm lacking something. I, I shouldn't be suffering. And because I am suffering, the, the Christian believes that God is, is just paying me back. I'm getting what I deserve. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon has to say in the sermon. He lived a hop skip away from affliction and suffering. His wife was bedridden for years and years and years. He was afflicted with depression that left him in his bed, at times only able to get up on that Sunday morning to preach. Listen to what he says. It is a great truth that every child of God is afflicted. Every child of God will have some trial or other. So I'm going to be just very upfront with you as we move into this message. Is this morning we need to go through the valley a little bit? Okay? But we will come out of it. It's going to look a little bleak at the start. But what I'm hoping that we see in the end is that when life hits hard and seems unbearable, Jesus offers hope. When life hits hard and seems unbearable, Jesus offers hope. And we're going to see this first, that he's delivered over. Second, that he's killed. Third, that there is a resurrection. And fourth, through the disciples' grief. All right, so first, let's look at Jesus being delivered over. The passage, it shows us that Jesus and his disciples, they're regrouping in Galilee. And for the second time, Matthew is showing us that Jesus is telling his disciples what he's come to accomplish. The start of our passage says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This, is, this was shocking for the disciples to hear. Because the disciples, they had no framework for Jesus to be delivered over. Why? Because Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. This was Peter's great confession just a chapter ago, right? 
And Peter, James, and John just saw the glory of Jesus. So how could Jesus say that he's going to be handed over to men, delivered over to men, abused by men? The disciples, they're starting to put the pieces together. Jesus is supposed to be the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. He's supposed to be the king. He's the descendant of David to establish a forever kingdom. The ruler who would restore ultimate peace. The, the disciples were putting these pieces together. Uh, Jesus even acknowledges right here in this passage that he is the son of man. Now to us 21st century non-Israelites, we would just look at that and say, us, I'm the son of a man. But every good little Jewish boy and girl who went to synagogue would know that Daniel 7 talks about this title, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is given to an everlasting ruler who has glory over all people, nations, and languages who would then serve the Son of Man. So Jesus is even acknowledging his divine appointed rule and reign. So how could it be that Jesus would be delivered into the hands of men? How could the Christ, the, the Son of Man, be delivered up like this? The disciples could not reconcile this. They, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, unite these two realities about Jesus. That the king would suffer? There are two explanations for Jesus being delivered over that I want to offer to us this morning. The, The first is the sinfulness of man. Jesus is handed over because of the sinfulness of man. Jesus, he will experience the pain of a close friend abandoning him, betraying him, Selling him out. Which I'm sure quite a few of you can relate to. In the last few years this has happened, this has almost sped up these falling outs, these abandonments. As culture wars have caused people to draw lines in the sand. And because of that, some of you have lost friends. Some of you have lost family members. Those close to you, they've left the church. They've abandoned the faith to follow the crowd, to to follow a political party. And you feel the pain and the loss. You feel as if you've been abandoned sold out, betrayed. Jesus understands the pain very well of what you are going through. That pain of loneliness. Second, The second explanation 
for Jesus being delivered over, which is a little bit harder to stomach than the first. It was the will of God that Jesus be handed over. It was God's divine plan that Jesus would be handed over. During this Christmas season, I think it's important to remember that Jesus had a life purpose. The birth of Christ gives us hope that sinful man can be united to God, but he reunites us by walking the road of suffering. That's how Jesus reunites us and reconciles us to God. That's how peace is given to us, is by Jesus walking the road of suffering. Not of triumph. Not quite yet. Now, I've asked you as a church just to, we just need to be honest with ourselves. This is upside down to how we think. Isn't it? I mean, when a, when a child is born, we don't look at that child first and foremost thinking, this child is going to suffer, do we? We think of all of the great opportunities, all of the great outcomes that this child could possibly do in their lifetime, all of the great things that the child could contribute. We think of all of the great ways that God may use this child. But we don't think that the child's life might be destined for suffering. Now, the text doesn't say this, and we'll be very careful with this, okay? But I hardly doubt that as Mary is holding Jesus for the first time, and she's looking at the crown of his head, she's thinking to herself that, he's, that his head will be pierced with wounds. As she's a brand new mom looking at the fingers and touching the palm and looking at his feet, she is thinking to herself that this child will be nailed. That as she is looking at his stomach and his side and examining everything and running her finger down his ribs, that she's thinking that a, that a spear will pierce the side of him. And yet, this was Jesus' destiny. He's marked for suffering. He's a man of sorrows. Did you know? Do you really believe and understand that it may be the will of God for you to suffer? This was God's will for Joseph. For Job, for David, for Daniel, for the prophets, for the disciples, for Charles Spurgeon, for you. Jesus tells his disciples that he will be handed over to men. What this tells us is that Jesus, he must walk the road of affliction, of abandonment, and of suffering. And yet the road that he travels doesn't stop at just being handed over, does it? 
It doesn't just stop at him being persecuted or abused or, or whipped or, or beaten or thrown into jail. He, as he walks this road and as he's preparing his disciples for this, he says that he'll be killed. The king. Jesus tells his disciples, and they will kill him. Now, if the disciples couldn't understand that he would be handed over to men, then they can't fathom him being killed. Why? Why, why would he die? Why would he have to die? Jesus, he is the, the king, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. We've, we've seen his glory. Isn't this Messiah going to, to, be, uh, to lead a political conquest? Right? That's what the disciples are thinking. Isn't this Messiah going to overthrow Rome? Isn't this Messiah going to make Israel great again? And yet Jesus' mission is far greater than the immediate needs of Israel. Israel interpreted rightly, the disciples are interpreting rightly that Christ is the king. They're getting that right. They're seeing that. But they did not see him as a servant. They did not think that the king would be a servant who suffers. But there is proof in the Old Testament that the promised one, the king, the Messiah, would suffer. And that proof starts all the way back in Genesis 3. When we were told that the offspring of the woman would bruise his heel while crushing the head of the serpent. There it is. He would bruise his heel. The servant would suffer. This is what Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 53. Oh, what a lovely chapter. Read it today. Go home and read Isaiah 53. What it shows us is that through a suffering servant, we would be forgiven of our sin. Through the wounds of another, we would be healed because he would be slain for our sins. You may be here this morning and you may be suffering deeply. You may be here this morning and just had the worst night of sleep in years. And it may seem like it's for no apparent reason. Maybe you're grieving a miscarriage. Maybe you're grieving that your health has limited your abilities to care for your family. Maybe you're grieving their family member was murdered. Jesus can relate to your suffering. Your suffering is not a vague, abstract concept to Jesus. He does not walk away from you bringing whatever you're suffering with to him, saying, I wish I could understand what they're going through. He does not walk away from, your, from you unfamiliar with the suffering you are walking through. In fact, he is 
intimately aware of what you are suffering with and what that is causing you to feel. And this is why, to the crowds, he says that a bruised reed I will not break or a smoldering wick I will quench. Let me say it like, like this for us 21st century modern readers. What Jesus is saying to the crowds, to those who are suffering, is he's saying, I will not snap a twig that's just barely hanging on there. And I will not blow out a glowing candle wick. Jesus knows exactly what you are going through. The road to Jesus' suffering will lead to him being killed. And so Jesus wants his disciples to understand this. Jesus, in a very compassionate way, is preparing his disciples so they are not shocked when it happens. Here's a very hopeful part of this. Is that Jesus will not stay dead, right? That's what our passage says. That's what Jesus says. On the third day, Jesus will be raised to life. This is exactly what Jesus tells his disciples. And, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is plainly telling his disciples where they can find hope. He's plainly telling his disciples, look, disciples, on the third day, one, two, three... I will be raised to life. He's not speaking in parables. He's not trying to confuse them. He's not trying to be cryptic. He's plainly telling them where they can find hope. He's trying to impart courage and hope. Jesus is trying to, to offer them hope so that when what takes place and when it feels unbearable, they should have this Jesus will rise on the third day in their minds and hearts. Right here in this moment, Jesus offers them hope for when the suffering comes, not just to him, but to them, to the disciples. This is the heart of the gospel. Just as Paul writes to the Corinthians, if Jesus didn't raise to life and we put our hope in Jesus, then we are to be pitied. Why? Because everything Jesus then said wasn't true. If Jesus didn't raise to life, then nothing he said was true. Then he wasn't perfect. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the King. But Jesus said that he would raise to life. And he does raise to life. The scriptures confirm this. And this means that he offers us great hope in the middle of our suffering. When we think it's unbearable, when we're up at night and we're crying out to God, do you hear my prayers right now? Is this thing on? This means that we can truly receive peace with God. We can truly receive love from God. We can truly receive hope that is everlasting from God because of the resurrection. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been wondering if God has it out for you. If he's listening to you at all. If he's just trying to be a jerk. He sent Christ to die for your sins so that you could have peace with him. That's how far his love for you goes, is that while that you are still a sinner, he sends his son to die for you. 
his child for your sins so that way you could become his child, a son, a daughter. And through this resurrection, through Jesus' resurrection, we see exactly that Jesus is who he says he is. So we are able to take Jesus at his word. Jesus is exactly who Peter confesses him as. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King. The road to suffering that Jesus traveled leads to resurrection. Suffering leads to hope. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. And yet, they miss it. Okay, so we're almost out of the valley, all right? Bear with me, we're almost there. I want to try and diagnose, just quickly, why in our suffering we're led to question if God is out for us. Why we're led to question if God hears us. Why we're, we're led to question, God, are you out there? Why we question if our suffering is just wasted if it means that I'm defective, if, if I'm some type of problem. The disciples' grief, it actually helps us. It shows us something important. Matthew notices how the disciples were feeling after Jesus says this to them. It's an interesting part of this passage. Matthew, he tells us the emotions that were coming out of, his, out of the disciples. He tells us, and they were greatly distressed. They were greatly sorrowful. They were greatly grieved. They were full of fear. But something's taking place here. The disciples no longer are trying to tell Jesus, no, you can't suffer. So their denial of Jesus' suffering in chapter 16 has now led to grief. This acknowledgement that it's going to happen and we don't want it to happen. And as humans, we could look at the disciples and we could say, if a friend was telling us that, we'd probably feel the same type of grief. What do you mean you're going to die? And so we see the disciples, they're devastated over what Jesus is saying. And why are they devastated? I mean, very simply, it's because they're thinking about his suffering and killing. They aren't setting their minds on things above. They aren't setting their minds on the resurrection. They aren't setting their mind on the hope that the resurrection offers. None of the disciples do this. Not one sets their mind on the resurrection. Not one of them questioned Jesus about his resurrection. What does this resurrection thing mean? Now we already know that the disciples are teachable. Uh, they ask Jesus all the time what parables meant. We just saw last week how they asked Jesus, why were we unable to cast a demon out of this poor little boy? 
What, what happens so we know that the disciples aren't afraid to ask Jesus these questions? And yet, for whatever reason, they're deeply grieved and they don't ask Jesus what the resurrection means. They're so focused on his suffering and what this means for them. Their minds are drawn to the bad. And not the hope that Jesus offers. Their mind is drawn to his suffering and his killing, not the resurrection. And far too often, don't we do the same? When we suffer, we think about it. We analyze it. And and then we think about it some more. And instead of looking to the hope that is offered us in God's word, instead of looking to the hope that is offered us in the resurrection, we forget this hope. And we continue to think about the suffering that's going on. Instead of gazing at Jesus and reminding ourselves of the victory that we have in Jesus, we sit in our suffering. We look at our suffering as if we're somehow defective in God's kingdom. As if we have a problem, which is not true. Why wouldn't we suffer here on earth? Why wouldn't temporal things make us depressed? Now, if we're in heaven and you're getting depressed... That's another thing. But here in a very temporal world where people will let you down, we should expect suffering. We should expect depression. We should expect anxiety when nothing is stable here. When life hits hard and seems unbearable, we see right here that Jesus, he offers hope through the resurrection. He offers hope here. He offers hope of a new life. He offers hope of a new body, of new health, of a new home. In the kingdom of God, your suffering is not wasted. We live in a society that sees suffering as a problem, but God does not see suffering as a problem. He actually sees suffering as an opportunity. He sees it as a great opportunity. Okay, so let's, let's break from the valley. Let's burst through the clouds and notice that the sun is still there. And see why we can have hope in our suffering. Why, there's, why God uses suffering as an opportunity. You know, I don't have this right here. I was just thinking about this this morning. The end of Genesis is, it prepares us for the whole entire rest of our lives. Right? Do you know what happens at the end of Genesis? Joseph, Joseph at the end of Genesis, he's, he's having this dialogue with his brothers, he's talking to his brothers, and he says, what you mean for evil, God means for good, which should prepare us for then the rest of the Bible, of what unfolds, what, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. That's what happens. In Peter's first letter to the church, he, he starts with encouraging those who have been grieved by various trials. He tells them that their faith is being purified 
So, so trials, so, so suffering actually purifies our faith. It, it makes our faith more true. When we enter out the other side of suffering, we actually leave that suffering saying, ah, I actually believe what was in my head. And I believe it more fully. I mean, have you ever met somebody who has suffered terribly and you've come out the other side? Are they not just the most joyful people rooted in Christ? It purifies your faith, but it purifies your faith so that way you're able to worship God more. Brother, sister, your trial, although it may seem like it will not end, it will lead you to more worship of Jesus. It will. Next, where we can, where, where, where Scripture offers us hope and opportunity for our sufferings is that Paul, he tells the church in Rome that suffering leads to endurance, endurance to character, character to hope which will not be put to shame because of the love of God which has been poured into your hearts. You see, that suffering, the end result of suffering is hope. Why? Because love has been poured into your heart by God. Why? Because suffering, it burns away all of those temporal hopes that you are hoping in in the moment. Suffering purifies you like a fire and helps you to see that there is more to life than whatever temporally you are latching onto, and you may not even know, notice it. Lastly, suffering actually prepares us to die well. As we see the Apostle Paul. Multiple times, the, the start of Second Corinthians, he, he writes to to uh, to the church, and he says that they were, that he was afflicted to the point of death. He had anxiety to the point of death. He later on in that letter goes on to tell him that I I have I have a thorn in my flesh, and I've been pleading and pleading with God to take it from me. And he says, "My grace is sufficient." And this is the same man who's then persecuted or not persecuted. Well, he's persecuted, but then he's He's murdered. He's murdered. He's beheaded. And yet when he dies, he, it's almost as if he leaves on a high note. The suffering for Paul prepared him to die well. I, I, think, I think it was John Wesley who, who said um, that he, he thought his job in his church was to help his people die well. And that he said, my people died better than anybody else. Suffering prepares you for death. Look out and up. Don't look in and down. Look out and up. Look out and up and remember that Jesus suffered. He suffered the full wrath of God. So that one day you would never suffer again. Jesus suffered for you. So that way when life hits hard and seems unbearable, when you are depressed, when you lose your dream job, when you have a miscarriage, when a loved one dies, you look at Christ and you remember the hope that he offers you.
look at Christ and remember that all suffering has an expiration date. Let's pray. tells us that you have sent the Holy Spirit to be our comforter. And so as we think about this passage, as we meditate about this passage, as we mull this passage over in our heart, would you please, by the power of your Spirit, comfort our hearts. For those who don't know you, would this lead to conviction? Would this lead to hope? that the things that they hope in in this lifetime won't bring them ultimate true hope. Only something eternal can, only your Son Jesus can. Please show that to them. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.